Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moilo the McLean, and tonight I'm joined by the wonderful Ash Shakar. I always look forward to ladies' night, Moya. So glad to be with you. Coming up on tonight's show, a row has broken out in Labour after Keir Starmer's decision to not remove the two-child benefit cap. The Met Police have made a massive payout to the family of Daniel Morgan, and the House of Lords is supremely unpopular. That's according to new polling. We'll be discussing House of Lords reform later, but stay tuned for all of that. But for now, let's go to our first bombastic, if I may say so, story. Now, north of Tyne Mayor Jamie Driscoll has today sensationally quit the Labour Party and announced that he will be running as an independent for the North East Mayorship when the election takes place next year. That's after Labour blocked him from standing for selection for the role. But there is a catch. He needs to raise £150,000 to run his campaign. Though that isn't looking like it's going to be a problem for the popular left-wing mayor. Since launching his crowdfunder earlier this afternoon, he's already raised over £43,000. Driscoll's fundraiser kicked off with this promise. A full campaign will cost around £150,000. I believe in listening to the public, so if you donate £25,000 by the end of August, I'll promise I'll run. And if I don't hit that target, I won't run. This decision is in your hands. Never mind the end of August, because that £25,000 was raised in under two hours. The election will take place in May next year. So, why was Driscoll blocked by Labour? It's because earlier this year, he discussed filmmaking with renowned film director Ken Loach. Ken Loach was expelled from the party in 2021 after supporting other people who'd been expelled for criticising Keir Starmer's handling of anti-Semitism claims. Last month on BBC Newsnight, Labour activist Paul Richards gave this explanation for why Driscoll was blocked. No one's entitled to this candidature, and if there are better candidates, then those are the ones that the members in the North East will select to do this job. You know, if I was offered an opportunity to stand on a platform with Ken Loach, I wouldn't chat to him about movies. I would challenge him on some of the odious and repulsive things he has said. Did you do that, over Jamie Over the last 25 years. Did I talk to, yeah, I was talking to Ken Loach about film. You no, 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 no. A... Did you challenge him on some of his you... views? No, again, I reject the premise of this. You don't turn up to a cultural event and then start talking about something you weren't invited to talk about. Why not? I... Why not? Well, well, exactly what are we talking about here? Are we talking? If, if someone wants to say Ken Lynch is anti-Semitic, they should come out and say it and stop all these briefings. But I want to challenge Paul's criteria there about being good at the job. I am a sitting Metro mayor. If I'm not good enough to be a sitting Metro mayor, why has the Labour Party not taken disciplinary action? This is going to damage Labour. He's raising the, the argument there about I haven't met the threshold. There is no published threshold. This it's a different is job, stupid. Jamie. Jamie, it's not no, the job you're doing now. It's a totally it's different job with a much job. bigger constituency. No, no, Paul, look, I know a lot more about the North East than you do. I'm doing this job now, mate. And I'm widely respected cross-party. I'll tell you what, Gateshead Labour Group tonight has refused to nominate on the basis of the way I've been treated. Independents have put in motions to councils. You sound like David Brent. You sound like David Brent somehow entitled to do the job. You know, this lot behind me, well, they'll back me no matter what. Um, the rules are there for everyone, aren't they, Jamie? For no, everybody, no, no, no. even you. Even no. you should obey the right. rules. No. You are showing a total disregard. If you think, believe in democracy, 
Why not let the members make that decision? I'm not asking to be slotted into the job. I'm asking to be allowed to put my case to You've members. You've been treated so no differently from any other Labour candidate. Every other Labour candidate is asked the question, is there anything there that's going to allow our opponents to beat us up right. in an election? And you've no. not apologised for it. You've admitted you did it. It's against the rules and you know that. And now you're pretending that you've been treated differently which, from anybody else. Which rules says you can't talk to a filmmaker about film? You're making that up, mate. You're making it up as you go along. And in that same show, this also happened. If somebody applies for a job and there are clear criteria uh, and they fail on those criteria, they shouldn't be expected a free pass into the shortlist. Any other organisation would say, well, if you don't meet the criteria, don't forget it's a new job. It's not the job that Mr Driscoll is doing now. Um, and there are plenty of other candidates far better equipped to take that on. I mean, well, let me put this to you. Jamie Driscoll has achieved the following as mayor. He says he's created over 4,000 jobs from a standing start. Businesses have signed up to the Voluntary Good Work Pledge, which now improves the pay and working conditions of over 50,000 workers. He's set up a venture capital fund owned by the combined authority. He says he's brought big companies to set up in the area. Those are all right achievements. Well, great, and congratulations to him. <laughs> congratulations to Driscoll for improving the lives of his constituents. Yeah, I agree. But apparently that's not the criteria that Labour are using to select candidates. Now, in his resignation letter to Keir Starmer, which was public and blistering, Driscoll wrote this. You've U-turned on so many promises. £28 billion to tackle the climate emergency, free school meals, ending university tuition fees, reversing NHS privatisation. In fact, a list of broken promises too long to repeat in this letter. Britain is a mess. Wages have fallen behind inflation. People are struggling to pay mortgages. Knife crime is out of control. Business investment is flatlining. The climate response is barely existent. People with chest pains weigh an hour for ambulances. Our transport system is in chaos. It's not grown-up politics to say Britain is broken and then claim things are now so different, difficult, we will abandon any plan to fix it. That is mental gymnastics worthy of Olympic gold. He obviously had drafted it before today or he would have been able to add the U-turn on the child benefit cap as well. But you can't really get more scathing than that list of failures by the Labour leadership. Now, Independent candidates have won mayoral elections several times in the past. In 2010, Lutfer Rahman stood as an independent in the Tower Hamlets mayoral election. That was after Labour dropped him, despite him being their initial candidate. He went on to win, gaining more than twice as many votes as the Labour candidate. And in the 2000 election, London mayoral election, Ken Livingstone was blocked from standing by Tony Blair and his spin doctors. He safely knocked Labour's preferred candidate, Frank Dobson, onto third place behind the Tory candidate and winning the first ever London mayoral election gave Livingstone, according to his biographer, quote, the largest and most direct mandate of any politician in British history. Perhaps Driscoll could pull off the same feat. And on that note, earlier today, I caught up with the North of Tyne mayor. I began by asking him about his decision to resign from Labour. I joined the Labour Party in 1985. My mum's a member, my wife's a member, my two teenage sons are members, and I've, you know, I've, I've God knows how many leaflets I've delivered in over the, over the decades. Um, in the end, what made it an easy decision was the amount of support I've had. Um, the, the way the Labour Party behaved in this has caused outrage in the North East. We've had half of the constituency parties refuse to even nominate a candidate. We've had others, we've had walkouts, we've had people being threatened with disciplinary action for even mentioning my name in meetings. 
Uh, and when you see that kind of reaction, it, it really does stick in your, stick in your craw. Um, and the support I've had from businesses, from trade union leaders, from community workers, from campaigners, from, from other politicians as well, um, conservatives and liberal democrats and independents, and loads of Labour people have said, Jamie, we want you to run as an independent. And I think something to do with that is perhaps to do with the nature of a metro mayor. It's a direct personal mandate. There's no party whip. And um, they want someone with experience who, and a bit of integrity who's going to step up and put the region ahead of party politics. What are the key pledges that you're hoping to achieve if you get elected for a second term? The biggest problem that I want to fix is our transport system in the northeast. Because I'm Metro Mayor now, and I've done a good job creating thousands of jobs and uh, improving the training programs for people tackling the climate emergency. But we don't have transport devolved in the Northeast because we're only half the regions, Newcastle and North Tyneside and Northumberland, but not South Tyneside and Gateshead and Sunderland and Durham. So bringing them into it was something I promised in my election manifesto in 2019. And a load of people said it was impossible. I worked for years on it, lots of cups of coffee, lots of pints of beer with people. I've worked with people like Michael Gove and Grant Shapps to get this deal over the line. We now have the best funded devolution deal in the country. And I pursued that deal because I want to get the metro system, the heavy rail system, and car clubs and active travel and bikes into a single integrated transport system under public control. So people in the Northeast can get where they want to go, when they want to go, in a low-carbon way, but affordably. I want to make transport free for under-18s. And uh, and the challenge of doing that is why I pulled that deal together. And then to be told you're not allowed to run for it, despite doing a fantastic job as mayor, well, that just didn't stack up. So I think that's perhaps why so many people said, Jamie, just run. You were very unequivocal in the letter that you put out today announcing that you were standing as an independent. Why was it important to you not to mince your words, as it were, and really say how you felt about the decision to block you from standing again and the general direction of Labour leadership at this point? Well, that's a good question, but I think that might just be me. Um, you know, I'm a believer in telling the truth, saying it as it is. Um, and by the way, that is not some sort of excuse for the, for the Nigel Farage's of this world. They're not saying as it is. Um, this is about, you know what people want from their politicians? They want someone who's not going to play daft political games who's going to tell them the truth. And when it's tough, we'll say it's tough, but have a little bit of hope, a little bit of vision, and say, this is what we can do. And there's a Geordie expression, shy bands getting out. So I think we can do this. Are you concerned at all, given you know Labour blocks you from standing again, that there will be obstacles if you run as independent, especially if you win as an independent, on Labour politicians working with you, collaborating with you? No, I don't think that for a second. Um, I've never hidden my politics. Um, I believe Britain should be running the interests of the people who do the work. And yet, I've got the best funded devolution deal in the country out of a conservative government by working constructively cross-party. We've got an independent, uh, so we've got a, a conservative council in Northumberland. We've got a, a coalition of independents, liberals and conservatives in County Durham, uh, the two biggest parts of the, the new Northeast Combined Authority. So you're going to have to work cross-party, whoever you are. Um, and who knows who will be in power in five years' time, in 10 years' time. So, you know, I don't buy this idea that you have to suck up to a national party if you want anything done. In fact, if anything, I would say that as an independent voice, you're more likely to get stuff done because they can't threaten you with deselection.
your campaign, which launched today, fundraiser, had a target of £25,000. You smashed that in under two hours. What was your reaction to this? And how much do you need in order to go up against a big party machinery that you no longer have behind you? I was genuinely surprised and humbled by that. So to have, to have hit that, we, we said by the end of August, um, it's going to be around £150,000. Um, and that's why we needed a certain amount before the end of August to know if it was even going to be possible. Um, there's no, I don't have a national press office. I don't have a slick um, spin doctor or anything like that. So everything we do is, is crowdfunded or small donations or donations from, from trade unions in the past. That's going to be difficult now because most of our affiliated Labour Party won't be allowed to. Um, although I think the individuals um, really are, are donating personally. Um, and this is things like leaflets or venue hire because I, I run a lot of, what the Americans call town halls, where I turn up, I talk to people, and I just let them ask me questions. Um, I was talking to a journalist earlier this afternoon. He says, well, thanks for doing this. It's really refreshing. You just let us ask any questions, and you answer them. He says, politicians don't seem to do that these days. But if you're going to do that, you need the, the platform to get out there so you can talk to people. Do you think we're going to see the rise of more independent candidates in politics? There's, there seems to be a feeling that people are fed up of this sort of pseudo two-party democracy. And if you have leadership of parties, freezing out candidates from certain political factions that they don't like. Are we going to see more people saying, you know what, actually, I think I would get more done and I might have a better chance of pursuing the politics I want if I run as an independent who isn't wedded to any particular party? I think that is very likely. I think we've seen some of that already. There are millions of people who at the moment feel nobody speaks for me. Nobody has the vision of the country or the region or the city that I want to live in. Um, and I think a large part of that is the control freakery that comes from central party machines. I think that is an issue. Um, I think we're also seeing the rise of so-called minor parties like the Greens. They, they seem to be winning in more places. And um, the idea that sisters and brothers can do it, do it for themselves, I think is appealing to people. And so I think we'll see that certainly where we have devolution in local government I think it's inevitably it's going to be hard in a general election. Um, I'm an advocate of PR. I don't think that's going to come in, but you know it would be good for the Britain uh, for the country. Do you think though, if we do get you know regional, localised, independent candidates who are not only standing but winning and delivering for people, that is going to provide more of a backing to systems of something like proportional representation, and may reinvigorate what some see as a flagging democracy? Well, there are those who say that Nigel Farage has a massive influence on the direction of the Tory party. So I think if we see a lot of independence winning, that's going to have influences over a lot of parties. Um, the, I was talking to someone today who says that they've had to rethink their view of politics because they thought previously that political ideas came from political parties. And they don't think that anymore. They think they're coming from independence community groups and think tanks and, and academics. So I think when you have people advocating for a different kind of politics... Parties who, are, who see this as nothing more than cynical positioning to win elections as opposed to telling the truth. This is the vision that we want to inspire people with. And I think we will see a shift. Um, it's very disappointing that, I don't know, the lack of anything cohesive or coherent. There are so many people at the moment who see we've got a climate emergency. We have a war in Europe that could potentially involve nuclear weapons. We have people facing mortgage spikes. We have people, so half of the public sector on strike at any one time. 
And then we get the leader of the opposition saying to Ed Miliband, I'm not interested in hope and change. We have West Street coming out and saying, oh, um, uh, no hope is better than false hope. What people want from their politicians is a bit of honesty, a bit of realism. It'd be nice if they had a bit of charisma, but I can take or leave that. But what they really want is them to say, I've got a plan for this. Do you want to vote for it? And we're not hearing the plans coming from anywhere. Have you had any contact or heard anything from the Labour Party since the announcement of your blocking from being selected was made? I've heard nothing from the Labour Party about um, their decision. All I got was an email that said, thank you for applying, you have not been successful. It was more long-winded than that, but that was the gist of it. Um, and so many people have contacted the party. Um, and They've all been routed back through the General Secretary saying, um, we are happy that the process has been run correctly. Oof, that was it. Um, but nobody from the Labour Party took the trouble to contact me. The announcement of Driscoll's independent campaign came just as Labour revealed their preferred candidate. Kim McGuinness is currently Police and Crime Commissioner for Northumbria. After her selection, McGuinness said her, quote, number one priority would be to end child poverty. I wonder if she's discussed that policy with Keir Starmer yet. Now let's have another look at Driscoll's fundraiser to see where it's at in just one afternoon. We started at under 45k and now it is on 46,000 pounds already raised in just a few hours. That's one afternoon he's got all that money. I'm not going to encourage you, but if you do want to put any money towards that campaign, we now know where the fundraiser is. Shall we move on to our next story, which is, again, more labour. The two-child benefit cap was introduced by George Osborne in 2017 as part of his austerity programme under the Cameron government. It stopped parents from receiving universal credit or claiming child tax credits for any more than their first two children. Recent research has shown that the cap has affected 1.5 million children. And rather than increasing employment, which is what Osborne promised, it's impoverished families. As a flagship Tory austerity policy, it seems like one that Labour would be keen to unpick. But here is what Keir Starmer, appearing on the BBC's Coonsberg on Sunday show, had to say about it. So let's have a think then about a few specific things that that Labour government you want to form would do. Um, if you have more than two children at the moment, you don't get benefits. Would that change under a Labour government? We're not changing that policy. You're not changing the two-child two child policy benefits, OK? The move is part of Labour's broader policy to prove that it is, how do I put this, fiscally responsible. Now, writing in The Guardian this weekend, Starmer pledged to rebuild broken Britain with reform, whatever that means, rather than spending. And in the article, Starmer goes on to say this. Many key indicators, including mortgage rates, show things are worse today than they were in the death days of the Trust government. But the mess we're in is symptomatic of a broader failure that spans the past 13 years. Only by sweeping away the entire failed Tory approach can we rebuild our country. But the hope that comes with the promise of a fresh start and a new way of doing things cannot be a code word for recklessness. Pointing at problems and promising vast sums of money to fix them has too often been the comfort zone of Labour oppositions and inevitably their final resting place. Of course, austerity is part of that failed Conservative approach, but it's a part that Starmer doesn't seem too keen on sweeping away, even when it comes to improving the lives of children. Starmer's announcement on the two-child policy puts him at odds with commitments some of his frontbenchers have made previously. Just last month, Shadow Work and Pensions Minister Jonathan Ashworth said this to the Mirror when asked about the cap. 
The former Conservative Welfare Minister, David Freud, described this as a vicious policy. He was absolutely correct to describe it as a vicious policy. We are very, very aware that this is one of the single most heinous elements of the system which is pushing children and families into poverty today. And in 2020, Shadow Deputy Leader Angela Rayner posted this on social media. The obscene and inhumane two-child cap must go, as must the five-week wait. Rayner was responding to research published by The Guardian, showing that for many pregnant women, the two-child policy, quote, effectively removed their choice over the pregnancy, persuading them to end a pregnancy they would, in a less fraught financial situation, have wanted to keep. And this was Starmer himself in 2020. We must scrap the inhuman work capability assessments and private provision of disability assessments, e.g. ATOS, scrap punitive sanctions, two-child limit, and benefits cap. So let's just summarise what's changed here. According to Labour a little while ago, the two-child cap was heinous, obscene, inhumane, pushing families into poverty, and punitive. But now, it's perfectly acceptable, even fiscally responsible, on ITV's Good Morning Britain, Susanna Reid asked Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper this. This is another U-turn, isn't it? And it's something that really could ease the cost of living crisis for thousands of families. Why has he changed his mind? Well, you're right that the cost of living crisis is hitting families right across the country and uh, people are really struggling. You've got mortgages going up now after the, the disastrous mini budget that we had last year. Uh, you've got people facing real pressure from rising food prices as well. What Labour's been clear about is we have to tackle the cost of living crisis and we also will always make sure that the proposals we put forward are fully costed and funded so that we can actually deliver them. Okay. And I think that's but what people this, want to see. They want to Cooper, see the this, credible yeah, plans. OK, well, what they need is an alternative plan, isn't it? Um, and critics say this is a major driver of deepening poverty amongst low-income families. Uh, the Child Poverty Action Group says abolishing the cap would lift a quarter of a million children out of poverty and mean that a further 850,000 children would be in less severe poverty. If you as the Labour Party want to represent those people who are currently being left in poverty by a cap which seems to many people completely unfair to children, then that would be a policy that it would be worth pursuing. I mean, the fact of the matter is, Keir Starmer thought it was something worth pursuing, but then you turned on it, just one of a number of U-turns he's done. That wasn't the end of the conversation, though. You know, Reid went on to also say this. You are in the position, Yvette Cooper, of people who would naturally be drawn to the Labour Party now wondering what it stands for. You've got Mick Lynch, General Secretary of the RMT Union, saying that can no longer tell the difference between the Labour Party and the government, they're just, you, you, you're not sounding like an alternative party. One of the things he says is that he's not sure what the missions are. So the missions of the Labour Party haven't even got through to one of the senior leaders of one of the unions that backs you. Can you remind him and voters what Sir Keir Starmer's missions are? So the missions are about getting the strongest growth in the G7. It's about cutting the most serious violent crime. It's about getting our NHS fit for purpose for the future. But the child poverty and helping kids get on in okay, life that, that is was three, also a is really that three part of, of them? It. 
Are you, sorry, do you want the so five, yeah, clean yes. energy? Two more. Clean energy by 2030, and also smashing the class barriers in the education system so that our children can get on. And that also means tackling child poverty and reforming universal credit, supporting kids, supporting families for the future. There is a massive cost of living crisis right, well, facing people in the clean, country let's, let's... as a result of the serious problems right. that this Tory government has left us with after 13 years. So, sorry to interrupt you, no, Richard. No, no, so, no, no. I strongly do think there is a massive difference between Labour and the Tories who have been in power for 13 years oh. and left us with a country that just feels broken, where everything's gone backwards, everyone is worse oh. off. Why is Richard Madley interrupting there instead of saying, where's the joined up thinking in this? If Keir Starmer's missions are, you know, to break down the class barriers, to improve children's welfare, to improve the rates of child poverty in this country and also improve employment employment rates why on earth is he not getting rid of the benefit cap which has been proven as we've talked about earlier not to get people into employment but to impoverish families further and households not to improve the fortunes of children in any way shape or form and the welfare that we see you know seeping into the education system the burdens we see in the education system start at home children who are starving children who are in households that live in poverty bring that into the school where the school is forced to provide for them as well on very, very scant resources. But instead, Richard Radley wants to interrupt and, you know, talk about something else. And they're happy that Yvette Cooper can reel off a couple of Keir Starmer's missions. They're not, not going in on, you know, where is the links between all these things? Why is there no holistic thinking about these policies instead of just saying we're going to make, be fiscally responsible with pursuing this growth agenda? There will be no growth if we are strangling the fortunes of children at such a young age. Ugh, it makes absolutely no sense. And as we've said, this specifically makes children worse off, especially those who are already from poor backgrounds. This graph is from The Guardian, but based on research by the End Child Poverty Coalition. And as you can see in the richer areas, those to the left of the graph, Hardly any children are affected by the cap, but if you move rightwards into more impoverished areas, the proportion of children affected by it, funnily enough, increases. In the poorest parts of Britain, nearly 30% of children feel the effect of the cap. Now, research has been published today into the impact of the two-child limit as well as the benefits cap. The benefits cap was another Tory policy that was introduced in 2013, and it set a maximum for how much working-age households could receive in benefits, even if their entitlements are higher. Part of the larger family study with authors from Oxford, LSE and York universities, the research reveals this. Both policies disproportionately affect households with higher living costs, particularly households living in private rented properties and those with larger families, which in turn means they disproportionately affect minority ethnic households. The research also contains heartbreaking testimonies from parents on the effect of the two-child limit on their families. Jessica has four children and is from Yorkshire. She said this. I couldn't even pay my gas, electric, council tax, rent. There wouldn't be enough money a month to even pay them. And that's without food and clothes for the kids. So I've just had to make the decision of I need to feed my children. I can't pay my council tax and my bills. And that's the decision I've had to make until hopefully I manage to get back to work. But, you know, that's kind of been dragged out of it because the more stressed and the worse my mental health gets, the longer I'm going to be off work for. And then there was also this testimonial from Alicia, who's from Yorkshire too. She has five children and she said this. My nine-year-old, a huge impact on him. Things like school photos. When school photos come round, he starts to panic because he wants a haircut. He daren't ask me. Cheapest haircut I can get from is about £10 or £11. I've tried doing clippers and stuff at home. 
no, it don't work. He's got very thick hair and he's nine. He wants to look nice. Things like their school uniform. If it wasn't for his school actually buying it this year, again, he's got quite anxious. He's a more shy child than my oldest, but he didn't have anxiety issues before. The larger family's study report concludes with this. Our evidence provides an overwhelming and we would argue unassailable case for the need to end both the two-child limit and the benefit cap and to centre support for families with children in a much more positive light within the social security system. Now, some in the Parliamentary Labour Party have expressed their unhappiness with Starmer's latest U-turn. MP Meg Hillier told Westminster Hour this. Well, I was never comfortable about having the child benefit cap come in. Personally, I'd be lobbying for a lifting of that. Labour MP Stephen Timms chairs the Commons Work and Pensions Committee, and he told the I newspaper this. The case for the two-child limit is not a strong one, and I've been interested to see Conservative MPs start to question the falling birth rate in this country. The limit as it currently stands only really makes sense if you think that families should not have more than two children, which I don't think people do think. As time goes on, the case for the two-child limit will be increasingly hard to make. Ash, is keeping the child benefit cap for a fiscally responsible future a Labour-owned goal? Well, it's an own goal in more ways than just the narrow political sense, because alleviating child poverty is one of the single most effective policy interventions you can make as a government if you want to talk about all of the knock-on effects that you see because of it. So if you scrap the two-child cap for benefits, that will cost about £1.3 billion a year. As we've already mentioned, that would take a quarter of a million children out of poverty, and it would significantly alleviate the poverty of a further 850,000 children. So you're talking about a really significant economic intervention into the lives of well over a million children for the cost of £1.3 billion a year. That's not very much money for an excellent outcome a really excellent policy outcome. And if you wanted to, you could pay for it by equalizing capital gains tax with income tax. So capital gains tax is a form of tax which you pay on investments. This isn't going to be something which is hitting people's monthly wage packets. It's something which disproportionately benefits much wealthier people because that's how they make their money. And you would get, you know, about... 8 billion a year from that, if not more. So with those kinds of policy interventions where you go, okay, here's a way to make an intervention into the lives of children in poverty. We're going to do it not by uh, hitting the pay packets of working people. We're going to do it by taxing wealth. It would be really, really straightforward. But you could also make the economic case for lifting those children out of poverty by thinking about all of those long-term benefits. So when you think about the way in which child poverty becomes an indicator for the need for other forms of state intervention, whether that's through child protective services, whether that's more support in schools, whether that's healthcare outcomes, which are negatively, negatively affected by children living in poverty, or whether that's the criminal justice system, because children in poverty are much more likely to find themselves sucked into the criminal justice system in some shape or form later in their lives. Well, then you start thinking about the savings which are being made in other aspects of the state, particularly over the long term. And that's before you get to just a very simple moral case, which is what the two-child benefit cap did was that it punished children 
the circumstances that they were born into. And I remember doing media in 2017 when it was first introduced. I remember being on Politics Live with, I believe it was Toby Young. And he was talking about personal responsibility and how the state shouldn't pay people to have children, all this kind of nonsense. And at the core of that belief is that the poor are feckless, that they are reckless, they're not deserving of our help, they're out there breeding like rabbits. And so you have to punish the children to discourage the breeding, right? That is the ideology which is at the heart of the two-child benefit cap. And it is ugly. It is Victorian. And it's not something which belongs in any modern or civilized society. But thanks to 10 years of austerity, we're neither modern nor civilized. And so I think that in that regard, it is a it is a known goal for Labour. I think that it's a policy which is the opposite of fiscally or socially responsible. But what Keir Starmer is doing is that he's looking at his very sizable poll lead and he thinks he can be reckless with it. He thinks, well, the Tories are so bad, I don't necessarily have to be good. And as I've said many times, that's enough to perhaps secure you one term in government. Is it enough to secure you two? Is it enough to be the kind of prime minister that people talk about in terms of, you know, eras, Clement Attlee being one? And this is the thing about fiscally responsible Labour governments. The most reckless ones have turned out to be the ones who didn't spend, who didn't invest, who didn't put that money into building institutions which made society a better place to live. The debt to GDP ratio was a lot higher coming out of World War II. We still fucking founded the NHS. So Keir Starmer has got neither the vision of Attlee nor the economic inheritance of Tony Blair. He's going to be, you know, fucking damp fart in an ill-fitting suit. And then he'll complain about why people don't like him. And the party, unfortunately, I think will shift further to the right, you know. The beatings will continue if morale doesn't improve. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone. Scrooge is how I feel when I see Kiss Starmer talking about fiscal responsibility. I always think it's quite ironic because, you know, as you say, Ash, the heart of this policy was this idea that uh, people having lots of children, it's this, you know, this the working class is breeding and they're not working and they're shirkers, all that horrible, really grim rhetoric. And then now you have a reactionary panic around the shrinking birth rate in the UK coming from a really right-wing, socially conservative group, the, the National Conservatives, I think they call themselves as the term, you know, the Miriam Cates as well, writing op-eds about how Keir Starmer wants to nationalise children and isn't doing enough to bring back this the birth rate and bring back the family and put the family at the heart of uh, national policy, which is really interesting to see how these sides have switched. Someone, I think, in the uh, comments on YouTube said that Keir Starmer is David Cameron's greatest legacy, the way that Blair was uh, Thatcher's greatest legacy, which is such a dead-on comment that I wanted to repeat it. A quick reminder that this show and the stories we cover are only possible because it is powered by you, our audience. And if you do want to continue supporting truthful, independent media, then go to navaramedia.com slash support. I repeat that one more time, navaramedia.com slash support. That link is in the description below also. And support us from just £1 a month or an hour's wage if you're feeling generous. Let's go on to our next story. This is Daniel Morgan, 
a private investigator. Now, in 1987, Morgan was found murdered in a South London pub car park with an axe embedded in his head. His killing was to become the most investigated murder in British history. And the failure to convict anyone for Morgan's death has caused his case to become a byword for institutional failures failures and corruption in British policing. Now, Metropolitan Police Commissioner Mark Rowley is currently conducting a clean-up operation of the force, and it's led to new development within the Daniel Morgan case. No, no arrests. Instead, the Times reports that Rowley will be making a public apology for, quote, corruption, incompetence and defensiveness that coloured the Met's investigation into Morgan's murder. But that is not all. The Met have apparently agreed a financial settlement with Morgan's family of two million pounds. Now, this is one of the biggest single compensation payouts in British policing history. To put that into perspective, in 2020 to 2021, the Met paid out just under £3.5 million in compensation on 112 claims of malfeasance, aka misconduct, by their officers. Morgan's family will receive 57% of that year's total compensation in just one payment. And that is on top of the 50 million already spent on botched investigations into Morgan's murder. The taxpayer has paid dearly for the Met's failures. However, Mark Rowley is still not willing to admit that those failures might be institutional. According to the Times, Rowley is still refusing to concede that the Met is institutionally corrupt. This is despite an independent panel branding the Met institutionally corrupt in 2021 after examining the investigations surrounding Daniel Morgan's murder. Baroness O'Lone, who led that panel, said the finding should be as significant as that of William McPherson's 1999 conclusion that the Met was, quote, institutionally racist. Now, Rowley has animosity towards the word institutional, as he said it's been, quote, politicised. It's the same reason he refused to accept the conclusion of a report released earlier this year, which said that the Met is institutionally racist, sexist and homophobic. Instead, Rowley argued that the word institutional was, quote, ambiguous and said that the problems were, quote, systemic and the Met was tackling them. Seems a bit like quibbling over the details to me. Ash, do you think it really matters how we refer to the Met's embedded issues? I think that it does matter because it tells you something about just how reformable an institution is or not. And it seems silly to quibble over the difference between a word like systemic and a word like institutional. But what the word institutional gives you, which perhaps systemic doesn't, is that this is written into the DNA of this particular organization. And so that's one of the things which I think we almost miss in how we remember the McPherson report, which is we almost use the word institutional to mean really big. It's got this really big problem. But actually, it was looking at how all of the processes within the Met Police's handling of the Stephen Lawrence case, that each of those processes was contaminated by racism. And so when you think about the case of Daniel Morgan and the finding of institutional corruption inside the Metropolitan Police and the handling of the Daniel Morgan case, then you're saying that every single process that went on in terms of the investigation was contaminated by corruption. And I think that's why the size of the payout is, you know, frankly, historic in 
Met Police terms. It is an astonishing sum of money for the Met Police to cough up because then you have to really ask yourself, well, what is the nature of that corruption? Why did it really happen? And what don't the Met Police want us to find out? Because that's what big payments do. Big payments say, okay, we can stop looking into this. Um, it becomes a definitive full stop at the end of a story. But the size of the payout, I think, maybe tells you something of the size of the story we're not getting. Yes, yeah, interesting. It comes in, I mean, the investigation into Daniel Morgan's murder was obviously very much botched. There is lots of info in the public sphere now, thanks in part to investigation by Peter Jukes and Morgan's brother, Alistair Morgan, on a podcast called Untold, uh, which seems to finger the people suspected of doing it. But something I'm really fascinated in discussing more with you, Ash, is do you think the Met should be handling its problems with our money? I've heard a lot of stories from both people close to me and also in the news about compensation payouts. So the Met will do something, say, strip search someone. They shouldn't strip search. I mean, they shouldn't strip search anyone, but they definitely should be strip searching some people. Um, or, you know, bungling a repeated investigation into a very high-profile murder that, in their own words, was solvable if it wasn't for corruption. And yet, only after the fact, well, then they, you know, bung a payment someone's way and the problems remain. So is compensation really something we should be celebrating per se? I think when you've got a system where accountability is largely a myth, you don't have police officers getting sacked when they need to get sacked. You don't have police officers being charged with criminal offences where, quite frankly, they should be being charged with, with criminal offences. So compensation becomes a way to reflect the severity of their wrongdoing and the harm that's done to the victims. So I can see why from that perspective, you want to celebrate the compensation payment because that is the validation of someone's experience who has probably had to fight uphill all the way just to get that kind of acknowledgement. But I think you're totally right to say this isn't really the Met Police's money. This is our money. And so if what you have is an institutionally corrupt police force, an institutionally racist police force, a police force which is riddled with endemic problems of misogyny and when they abuse their power, when they cover up their abuses of power, when they don't uphold the standards that they've signed up to, well, instead of being taken apart as an organization or heads rolling, they get to pay off claimants using money which is not theirs. It's not coming out of their budgets because, you know, politicians can't really get away with doing a Theresa May slash and burn of police budgets anymore. Where's the incentive to change? So you can talk about reform all you like. You can talk about working with people within the police all you like. But you have this very simple financial incentive not to change. You fuck up, you're not paying for it. I think that is unfortunately extremely true. And we're going to carry on talking about reform versus abolish with our next story. Bad news for the unelected peers who help shape our country's legislation. Turns out they're not very popular. New polling from opinion for the think tank Labour Together has found just one in five members of the public support the existence of the House of Lords. The polling also suggested this. Only 20% of the public trust the Lords to act in the interests of the people, compared to 40% who trust MPs and 43% councillors. Two-thirds think the Lords should be abolished and replaced by a directly elected second chamber. Still not pretty good on the MPs and councillors front, is it? And can we blame them? Now, the House of Lords is in a bit of a 
existential crisis at the moment, much like the rest of our creaking parliamentary apparatus, but it's being faced with scrutiny for a number of reasons. And the first is thanks to Boris Johnson's attempts to bung the second house full of his friends and allies. Remember Johnson's not-so-honourable honours list? It included the likes of Nadine Dorries, Jacob Rees-Mogg, and a 29-year-old former aide who was nominated for a life peerage after reportedly providing, quote, maternity cover in Downing Street. She, by the way, has taken up her seat just last week. And several people, Dorries among them, were removed from the final approved list, but there is still major upset about Johnson's nominations, who, as I have said, now taking up their seats in the House. And that upset comes from the Lords themselves. The Lord Speaker's Committee on the Size of the House published a new report this week. The cross-party committee was set up to explore how the size of the Lords could be reduced something Boris Johnson didn't give a fig about, apparently. Now, the report states this. Prime Minister Boris Johnson showed no interest in this issue of the size of the House. While the number of departures from the House continued to be broadly in line with our benchmarks, the number of appointments far exceeded them, and they were granted predominantly to members of his own party. In recent months, there have been further developments which have brought the appointment system into question. Most notably, there was considerable controversy over the size and composition of Prime Minister Boris Johnson's resignation list, with over half of the initial nominees not being approved by the House of Lords Appointments Commission. There's also concern that, because the Conservatives now have so many more members than Labour, the next Labour Prime Minister will appoint a large number of new peers in order to get the government's business through the House, though this has been denied by the Labour leadership. If Labour won the next election it would only have 181 peers out of 824. And the number of Conservative peers is currently 50% higher than the number of Labour members. Unsurprisingly, the Lords Committee is not in favour of abolishing the House of Lords, as has been previously promised by Keir Starman. We know how he loves to keep his pledges. But they do want to shrink its membership down to 600. They've also got some additional proposals, and these include fixed terms of 15 years, the phasing out of hereditary peers, a cap on the size of the House, and fair appointments allocations based on a party's common seats and general election votes. Now, the point the committee makes about the government stacking the laws with party-aligned peers in order to get business through is particularly interesting in light of a report that appeared last week in Politico, titled, Why Rishi Sunak Needs Pensioners Staying Up All Night to Get Stuff Done. Everyone agrees Parliament's upper chamber is ripe for reform, but its elderly legislators are busier than ever. The article says this. The elderly peers are now regularly staying up late through the night to get government legislation through, with Sunak accused of using the unelected upper chamber to do the hard yards in order to avoid embarrassing climb-downs in the Commons. And here's a quote from an anonymous Conservative MP that Weber spoke to, who said... Rishi seems to make agreements in the Commons, but then do all the real work in the Lords. And there's another quote from Lib Dem Lords leader Richard Newby, who had harsher words. He told Weber, People here now think that the Commons has virtually ceased to be a legislature. The bills are dealt with in double-quick time, and not just the minor issues. Let's talk reform again, Ash. Is the Lords capable of reform? Should it be reformed? Well, I think the idea that you have an unelected upper house is absolutely insane and it's unjustifiable. Why do you have these people, some of whom have nothing to qualify them other than they're chums with the right politicians or they were born into the right clan of blue bloods to sit there and do this really crucial legislative work? So I understand 
that there are some tensions, constitutional tensions, about how do you balance an elected upper house with an elected House of Commons when, you know, Parliament is meant to be sovereign. But I think that our present state of affairs, where you just have this totally bloated House of Lords, um, you know, being filled with a, by a combination of, you know, time servers and arse lickers is wholly untenable. And I can see that this proposed list of reforms, fixed terms of 15 years, uh, phasing out hereditary peers, they're the blue bloods I mentioned, um, having proportionate allocations, is trying to go some way of dealing with that. It's trying to establish some kind of fudge between a unelected House of Lords and some principles of democracy. But I still think that it doesn't get to the heart of the problem, which is why are peers selected through processes which are really opaque they've got no democratic accountability whatsoever we don't know and even though yes you've got a fixed term of 15 years or you know yes political parties get a fair bite of the apple you're not changing that really essential fact so look i can understand why an incoming labor government might not tackle the house of lords in a first part first parliamentary term. Like, I, I can understand why that might not be the very first thing that you do. But you can't leave it the way it is. Total joke. Total, total joke. And the thing about, just to finish up on, the thing about the hard yards being done in the House of Lords, I think the fact that the House of Lords is less scrutinised is something which allows the House of Commons to be really bad. So you've got all of this legislation which is being proposed by a conservative party which is being you know radicalized by a combination of its own base and its own you know supportive newspapers announcing mad stuff which conflicts with already existing laws and legislation stuff which is unworkable unimplementable and they're allowed to sort of absorb the plaudits from the daily mail or the spectator of the telegraph and then quietly shunt it to the house of lords that's a bad political system. It creates bad incentives and we get bad politics because of it. I totally agree. And also what we were saying earlier, it goes back to that point. It's being shunted to people who don't have necessarily the expertise or any legislative experience. And it's not that the MPs in the House of Commons at the moment seem that much better themselves. But this is, you know, a completely unelected house. You've got hereditary peers, you've got life peers, you've got bishops. <laughs> such a such a bizarre mix of the old non-secular Britain with the new. So you've got, I don't know, the Archbishop of Canterbury pouring over legislation along with Boris Johnson's former age, 29-year-old age who did maternity cover. I'm 28. Don't put me in the House of Lords. I'm telling you right now, I, I have no qualifications to be looking over legislation that's going to direct the future of the country. Um, I just wanted to actually ask as well, actually, Ash, do you think it's, we're talking about this, you know, Rishi Sunak passing legislation to the House of Lords. Is this an indication of weakness or is this a story that has been specifically briefed to Politico to indicate Rishi Sunak's weakness? What does it say about Sunak's confidence in his own position in the Commons? Well, I think one of the things which this kind of tallies with is that you have had the pace of legislative movement slow to a crawl in the House of Commons. This is something which isn't just coming from Politico, it's something which is also being briefed to the Times, being said by the New Statesman, by like all the lobby nerds who, who really care about this stuff. And so I think that if you look at the sort of, you know, the breaks being hit 
in the House of Commons, apart from the big ticket stuff, the fights that the government really, really want to have, and they're confident they can unite their party on, that is indicative of Rishi Sunak's weakness. And I think it's a weakness which is structural. He doesn't have a great amount of support amongst the conservative benches. It just it happens to be the case that there isn't a plausible rival. Um, and you also have, I think, a, a real lack of vision. I mean, Boris Johnson squandered an 80-seat majority. That's a kind of once-in-a-lifetime political opportunity, which I imagine means that, you know, his name is dirt in CCHQ. But he entered Parliament with a certain kind of vision, or at least he was surrounded by advisors who had a vision for a slightly more redistributive form of conservatism. That's dead in the water, killed in part by Boris Johnson jettisoning many of those advisors and committing himself, you know, full time to eating cake and scamming wallpaper. But Rishi Sunak doesn't have even that. And so I think that he's totally weak. He doesn't have an economic or a social base or really much of a political one. Very quickly, I want to mention a story that's been published on NavaraMedia.com today. Here it is. It's from our very own Ashtakar with additional reporting from Simon Childs. And the headline reads, The weird story of the climate hoaxers who planted fake top-secret government documents around London. Luckily, we have one of its authors with us today. Ash, can you tell me a little bit more about this story? Yes. So back in May... I was contacted by two art students who were hilarious. They were sending me all these Instagram DMs like, I've got a hot potato, like being really cryptic. And it's because they were scared of getting getting in trouble. They handed me these documents. They were marked top secret. And I thought, this is my Woodward and Bernstein moment. Pulitzer's baby. It's all going to be gravy from here. Um, After a really long time trying to legal the story, I found out that they were fakes. The cabinet office just said, not ours, nothing to do with us. Um, It's a hoax. And so because I am very nosy and I can't abide an unsolved mystery, I wanted to find out who was behind it. And I promise that this story, it's not like one of those, oh, are we going to solve the mystery? No, we're not. But you're eight podcast episodes in. You will find out who did it and you will find out why they did it. For me, one of the most interesting things about the whole thing is that the actual culprits really didn't resemble the kind of people who I thought would be behind it. So I think that it's an interesting detective story. I think that you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll come to terms and please, please read it. Make it worth all the time that I've spent on this Gossip Girl enterprise. Yes, read it as well before the Times comes out with their own version. Yep, that's right. Navarra Media scoop the Times. Now, that is up on NavarraMedia.com right now, and the link for the story is in the description box below. And before we go, one last thing. At the start of the show, obviously, we spoke to Jamie Driscoll. And at that point, he'd raised around 44K on his campaign fundraiser. And I think we should have another look and see how it's doing now. £50,000, just a hundred grand to go. That is in one day. Amazing. Ash, thank you so much for joining me tonight. We had an absolutely jam-packed show today. We did have a jam-packed show. And I also really liked the way you kept going back to the Jamie Driscoll crowdfunder. Like it was, you know, a Blue Peter charity drive. And they're like, <laughs> let's go to the counter. So it was great. 
Do you know what? This is something better than charity. This is a principled politician giving, being backed by people, just like Navarra Media is backed by people. And that's why I wanted to return to it again and again throughout this show. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for watching us this evening. Come back tomorrow from another live stream from 6 p.m. For now, you have been watching and hopefully enjoying Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.